1: Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. You're
2: listening to Fields, the podcast. I'm Wythe Marshall.
3: And I'm Melissa Metric.
2: On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history.
3: In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming in urban environments.
2: Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today.
3: You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie.
2: We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements. Hey
3: everyone, this is just a quick update. Our interview with Annie Novak was recorded in March. So some of the classes that we were talking about um, may have already happened, but she has plenty of classes that are coming up. So again, she teaches at Atlas Obscura. Um, She also has classes at the New York Botanical Garden. Um, She manages the farm, Eagle Street Rooftop Farm, where there may be volunteer days. And you could also check out more of her work uh, with growing chefs. So thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. Um, Welcome to Fields Podcast. Um, We have a very special guest today. We're really excited. Um, uh, We have Annie Novak here. Hi, Annie. Hey, Melissa. Um and we're sorry to say, but but wife couldn't make it today because he has jury duty. but um you know it's a very important task or a very important job that we all have to do. So um, but we're gonna we're still gonna talk to Annie. Annie, thank you so much for being here. Um and we'll just kind of get started. So um Annie, can you introduce yourself and all of the wonderful things that you do? Um, we you know. We'll, we'll just kind of keep it short and then we'll go in depth.
4: Yeah. So I uh, currently am the manager of a facility called the Edible Academy, which is at the New York Botanical Garden, the garden in the Bronx. I also run and helped co-found the Eagle Street Rooftop Farm, which is a green roof vegetable farm in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. That is the first commercial green roof farm, at, at least in New York City, definitely the country and possibly the world. And uh, I also run a nonprofit called Growing Chefs that does food education principally with school and after school programs, but also sort of out in the community, um primarily with children, but increasingly with adults as everybody realizes how fun it is to connect to food. So they are my three main gigs um, with with free time and hobbies abounding.
3: yeah, <laughs> I feel like whenever um i I talk to you, I always feel like you're you're working on some amazing things. and then, of course, your long-term kind of projects. Um, so um, I was wondering, can you um, speak a little bit? Yeah. So, how did you get into growing food in urban areas in general? We could we could go all the way back because Annie, you and I go very far back. But um, but yeah, if you could just share with everyone how you started in urban agriculture.
4: I yeah, it's funny the transition between. Agriculture, my interest in agriculture generally, and my interest in urban agriculture was very seamless. I think now there's um there are a lot more people that I'm meeting who are coming into agriculture from an urban landscape, which was not the case for me. Like I didn't know uh, community gardens, for sure are very strong in New York City. And I think if I had thought it through at the time, I probably would have just joined a community garden and stopped there. But I was just interested in the agricultural landscape generally. Um, I had done a research paper in college on, Chocolate farming in West Africa, working with West African farmers. And that, I think, was probably my first formal foray into an agricultural landscape. I was really interested in thinking about more formally something called commodity chain analysis, but informally, just like where is food coming from and where does it go? And that narrative um, has always interested me. And I think starting with chocolate, because it's such a great plant and delicious food um, was a good gateway for me. But once I got back into New York City and had graduated college and started working at the green markets and working with farmers upstate, I think my intention really was to always go back out into rural or peri-urban areas. But um, I was lucky enough, starting with the Botanical Garden, which has the, the New York Botanical Garden in the Bronx, which has such an awesome edible food growing facility, I was lucky to get involved in projects that were city-based. Um, That allowed me to stay in the place that I love most dearly in the world and also work with this new uh, material that I was really excited about. Um, But again, like I'd point out that that path seems unique to me still because I find that folks really do separate themselves into I'm specifically working in urban farms or I'm specifically working in rural farms. And I had the real pleasure of covering the whole spectrum um, early in my career, which was really lucky.
3: Yeah. And I feel like especially working with rural farmers, just getting, you know, in, in being around rural farmers, um, I always felt that the farmer's market was a good segue where it's like, wow, I have I could get to know these rural farmers. I have access to these rural farmers and I could ask them what's going on on their farms. Totally. How are they actually yeah. doing this crazy job that they do, um, yeah. you know, driving to the farmer's market, you multiple times a week for like two to three hours growing all this stuff. It's just kind of amazing. And also just being able to pick their brains, you know? Um, yeah.
4: Well you and I connected over that very early on. And I um I, I think one of the things I really loved about it is it it gives it gives you a sort of regional perspective because, you know, urban farming Is really important, and I love that it gives people like a visual and participatory access to agriculture. But the real impact on like air quality, watershed, food production, and mass like that all happens outside of New York City. um, No matter how big we build our rooftop farms. And so, you know, when when you and I first met, Melissa, and we we both geeked out on farmers markets, and then I got the chance to pull you up to the New York Botanical Garden in the Bronx, and then we started working together on a, a private rooftop farm. You know, these are all really small space projects with big social impact. But, like, the questions we would have, like, where do we get the best transplants? What are the major pest problems in the area? What fungal diseases are killing all the basil right now? Like, that's stuff where you and I would turn to the farmers we worked with because they were the ones who had that bigger landscape perspective to share. Um, so I totally agree with you. It's a, It's an awesome resource. And I... Unfortunately, when farmers are at the farmers market, they're often their most tired, uh, dealing with too many people. <laughs> so we're, I feel like where we really lucked out is we actually have like good relationships with people, so yeah. we're not like, pains in their ass. But but I agree with you. I uh, yeah, it's unfortunately like I feel like PR has become part of a farmer's job while at the market. It's mm-hmm. like a little exhausting. But yeah,
3: yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in between bathroom breaks or like Yeah. or just like
4: trying to stay awake. You know, yeah, like,
3: it's, yeah,
4: it's a long ass day. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Um, so how did you find yourself up in the botanical gardens and, and how long have you been there? And if you could explain your work there a little bit more. Yeah, so the New York Botanical Garden
4: in the Bronx is this incredible 250-acre museum, basically. It's a, I mean, it is literally a museum. Uh and it has this extraordinary campus with like a 50-acre native forest. Um, the site that I work on is a three-acre vegetable garden um with a classroom facility and a greenhouse and all sorts of other bells and whistles. Um I was in college in um, Westchester and had applied to an ethnobotany internship uh, about a month before I graduated college. It was a very last minute thing um, due to, you know, circumstances in my life. Um, But anyway, uh, I got picked to work in the children's education department instead. So I had gone into it thinking I would work, you know, ethnobotany is this space within academia where you can look at like the relationships between plants and people and I think sort of based on my relevant experience and resume and how I presented myself, they were like, you know, let's put her in education because she seems like she likes to talk a lot <laughs> and she's a good learner and it's true. So I, uh, uh, maybe some other qualities as well, but, um, but I ended up working at the edible Academy then called the family garden in 2005. So it's been a really, really long time. Wow. Yeah. And wow. where I'm, where I feel really fortunate is that I started as an intern I became an educator. I was promoted to coordinator and now I'm a manager. And so I've had this path where I've really learned everything about the site. I've had a chance to help develop the site. I have colleagues I've worked with for that entire time, colleagues that I've hired in. Um, It's a really, really incredible space. So again, it's called the Edible Academy and it is open to the public. So if people want to come visit, we have so many programs you can get involved in, including volunteering alongside of us and learning how to plant, um, which is in some ways like the most hooked up community garden you could possibly ask for. Um, Cause we have such a fantastic facility up there.
3: Yeah. The facility, it, it was so amazing when, um, you know, when it became the, the, um, edible we, Academy. yeah, the edible Academy before it was Ruth Howe family garden and just like now, you know, there's greenhouses and there's just like all of this amazing beautiful, and the work was always beautiful and amazing, and, um, just so professionally like set up, it's just so amazing to have this resource within New York that maybe like, you know, a lot of people be like, oh, I'll go to the New York botanical gardens, but they won't know about this whole educational facility where you could take, you know, your really young children there to start from the beginning, you know, of like, yeah. cause that's um, what you, you got to yeah.
4: do, right? Scouts educator. Yeah. So yeah. you, you, and you worked with the little, little guys, what were some of your favorite parts about that?
3: Um, what was it? I I just feel like you all set it up so easily. Like, okay, this is usually how we do a lesson. Like, um, you're going to teach this certain subject. We're going to do this amazing snack with like fresh vegetables and things like that and get the parents in. And I, I think I remember making like this really delicious, um, it was like a cabbage salad or something. I think it had like, uh, maple syrup in it and raisins. And it was kind of sweet, but salty. And it was like really delicious or, um, yeah, we just had so much fun. And then they got to do these little projects, like sow seeds. And it just seemed like such an enjoyable experience to have like your little, little ones and the parents could come along or, or, you know, their guardians or whoever, um, and be with them for that experience. And I think like, that's something that a lot of people, maybe lacking in urban areas of like wait how do i actually do this how do i get my my kids involved or you know youth in general involved so it's kind of amazing that um the new york botanical gardens has that and also that that just like they have such a rock star like you help you know like managing this facility and it's so crazy i was just thinking about so it's like you've almost been there for 20 years that's yeah. that's incredible yeah. I mean, it, it, it is and it isn't. I, one
4: thing I'll point out about the Sprouts program that, that you were part of is, um, so that the children's gardening program has been a component of our education department since 1956. I mean, wow. we have photos going back to when the program, at first it was free. And then they realized that didn't help with um, retention. So they started charging a dollar. Um, it's always been a really affordable program. And the site that you worked on before we evolved into the Edible Academy, the Ruth Ray Howe Family Garden, that, that, family, the Howell family has actually been a really important part of developing the children's education work at the Botanical Garden. We have two other children's education sites. So it's, I don't, you know, we're not here to talk about children's education, but as you just pointed out, getting kids involved at an early age and giving them that, you know, literally just like the bandwidth and the space to indulge in biophilia and to be in fresh air. We, you know, we have kids that come in and their parents' whole goal is like, get them to eat a vegetable. I'm like, okay, but also let's get them breathing fresh air, touching soil, you know, engaging in curiosity in a free play. Like there are a lot, there's such a wide spectrum of benefits to it. And to just bring that up a level, the botanical garden, and then the work that I do with Eagle Street and with Growing Chefs, we engage with adults too. And it's through the exact same teaching pedagogy. I teach adult education classes using literally the same pedagogy that I do with kids. I just happen to make the vocabulary more challenging or the questions more reflective. Um, but I think that's really important because something that, I fell in love with agriculture about agriculture really early on is a cyclical process of learning this opportunity every season to fail and try and try and fail and how that encourages. If you're, um, you know, a curious optimist is I try to be, um, it encourages you to learn for the rest of your life. And that's, you know, even on the grumpiest days, like some of the things that I love the most about the farmers that we've worked with are that they are innately, curious people. I think ultimately probably like freedom loving is the big part, <laughs> but, but engaged in curious people because it's it's hard work and it requires a constant learning process. So, you know, when you say, oh, Annie, you've been there for almost 20 years. And I'm like, girl, I could be there for 200 years. Like there's just, <laughs> particularly an institution like that where I'm in, I'm in a small section of a very large, you know, we have over 500 employees. Like yeah. there's a huge, huge institution at this space. And, you know, I met earlier today with someone from our forestry team and like we were talking about the health of the urban forest. That's the, it's literally the forest next to my campus. Yeah. I look at these trees every day. And this was one of my first conversations with someone about, you know, the specific topic we were talking about. I was like, man, I could spend the next 20 years just hanging out in the forest. Like there's so much to learn. So, you know, that, that I, it's, it's part of why I've always been so grateful. We have the opportunity to bring in people like yourself. Like we have this rotation of educators who work with us. We learn so much from you coming in and bringing your ideas and creativity. And then, it keeps, it keeps the work fresh for me too. Like if I'm going to stick for 20 years, I want, I want new staff to work with and new ideas percolating.
3: Yeah, definitely. And, and just the, the folks that it would draw in in general as educators. Oh my God. Um, Yeah. Best colleagues ever. Yeah. Like
4: total sweethearts, super cool science dorks. You're absolutely right. Like really the best colleagues you could possibly ask for.
3: Yeah. (laughs) And also just a mix of people who have been there for like a decent amount of time. And then also, you know, the fresh blood that kind of comes in and everything else. Um, But also, like you mentioned, surrounded by um, just scholars and, and folks that are so passionate about the work that they do and all different types of work. You know, so like you were talking about forestry and and how that could also just tie into, um, you know, the lesson plans that you do or um, and also your other work. Oh, God, there's so much work that 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 you do in general. Um, uh, Speaking of which, um, two things. Can you just mention really quickly the um, how you work with adults at the New York Botanical Gardens via the classes that you teach there? Um, and then also leading into grown chefs. <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay. So
4: I, I started teaching adult education classes of, a while ago. I think at this point I've officially taught over ten thousand adult students, which is bananas. Wow, um, that's incredible. Yeah, and that's through um, online learning with the New York Botanical Garden, and then prior to the pandemic, in-person learning. And then I also teach with Atlas Obscura, which has been so phenomenal in yes. the last two years, three years now. And then I do you know like lecturing and that kind of thing. So it's great. Um, I find adult learners to be um extremely self-motivated. Um, you know, they're all the the courses I teach are outside of a certification program. So they're there because they want to be there. Um I have a range of topics I like to cover, everything from sort of like the basics of organic vegetable gardening all the way up to the last class I just finished teaching on tree communication, which was hot topic. People were all fired up to learn about that. Um, And I I'll just say a quick note about that. Um, The Botanical Garden has a phenomenal adult education program. I mean, you don't have to take a class from me. You should just sign up. Um, With Atlas Obscura, phenomenal, very wonky, all over the map, super curious, um, curiosity-driven class topics. My aim with tree communication um, was to think about sort of the popular culture concepts that are out right now, Um, like... You know, I think at this point, everybody's aware that mycorrhizal networks helps trees communicate. And what I was interested in was thinking about how um, the human perspective of communication, talking, feeling, all these concepts and perspectives that really are linked to our species. How does that translate or fail to translate to trees, which are an entirely different species, an entirely different kingdom, and living on a completely different time scale? So what I find wonderful about the opportunity to teach adults is that you can tackle big topics like that, which bridge science and philosophy ethics and botany. Um, and uh, sometimes they can give you really sassy, mean feedback, which is super helpful because I learned from that too, um, about, you know, sort of how they might agree or disagree with the perspective I'm offering. But it also gives me a chance um, to explore topics I'm curious about. So a lot of times, you know, you mentioned at the Botanic Garden, our children's ed program have a very rigorous um, curricula that we follow. We we do, we create a scaffolding that we think best suits sort of the learning standards for children. When I teach adult ed classes, I take that into account. But a lot of it really is about exploration. Um, Because one thing I've really taken away from agriculture, botany, being part of a scientific institution like, you know, the museum that is the Botanical Garden, is um, answers are awesome. But really learning how to question things is even stronger. Um, And coming at things with your prior knowledge and exploring, you know, really making sure you're not making assumptions. Really making sure you're... um, making direct observations and then from that ask what more do I need to know in order to
3: draw a conclusion? Um, yeah. So it's a very scientific background. Like that's that's yeah. or or coming to it in a in a scientific um yeah approaching it just, with the scientific method in mind. Yeah. Exactly the scientific yeah. method. Because yeah. I think I think that's so interesting what you were saying about how um I guess would it be anthropomorphizing um trees in a way or mycelium and how mycelium you know, com- work with trees or even working. I don't, I don't even know if that's like have a symbiotic relationship with trees sometimes and sometimes they decompose trees or sometimes they're parasitic to trees, you know? So it's like all these different relationships, but, um, yeah, there has been almost this wildfire of like, oh my God. And, and I, and, I, you know, I'm guilty of it too. Like I was just teaching my students about, um, my horizon networks today. Cause I was teaching them about mushrooms. Um, awesome but that is interesting. This, this aspect of how much do we anthropomorphize? If if I could say that that would be the term of, yeah,
4: um, I, well, I'll, I'll, I, cause this class was much longer than our conversation will be. I can give you my, my, my main takeaways as briefly as possible. Um, one thing is I think the language that we're limited to when we use English, um, does put us in a bit of a pickle in terms of how how do we express um, a relationship that we're perceiving between two kingdoms, fungi and plants, um, in a way that doesn't have implications in our understanding of that word? So I'll I'll just use the example of causing calling something a mother tree and talking about how a mother tree might like help support. So here's two words already: mother and support. Um, uh, unhealthy trees or related trees in the area, right? Like trees of the same species, or there are now it's been shown relationships between different species of trees in the same area. So what I would dissect about that is, um, can I use that language? Or if you and I were to discuss this, use that language and not have certain preconceived notions in mind, does mother imply that that tree is older and also the tree that planted those other trees, or does mother just imply a caregiving aspect? And then also, what does that say about the way we think about mothers? Um, does it mean that, um, you know, when we say support that there's this idea that, um, Instead of a a two-way passage of nutrients, for example, there's only a one-way passage. And why, what's like, is there there an inherent motive that trees have to have to do that? Okay, so there's so much complication. That's just the language. So the science of it I find fascinating. And and when I ended up teaching this class, what I really did is I just said, look, here's, here's the plant kingdom and here's how plants work. Here's how trees work. And here's how trees are so different than other plants. And what implication does that have as a perennial plant that produces woody tissue and that has minerals and waters moving through in a specific way because of the woody tissue. Okay. And then fungi. How many millions of kinds of fungi are there? How do they function differently? Like you just said, there's some that are saprophytic and some that aren't like some that eat dead tissue and some that don't. Okay. So then you read this research, right? And a lot of the controversy, if I'm going to be as brief as possible, seems to land on one sensitivity around language, right? Like we shouldn't go out there and be like, wow, like, mm, trees and mushrooms are like bonding and creating relations, whatever, like semantics. But, but the other thing I'm wondering is why in this kind of relationship, why would we, why do we need to assign motive when another way to think about it is if, if the inherent desire of most living things on earth is to reproduce, um, could we consider them a single, um, acting organism? So, not that mushrooms and trees are the same, right? They're separate kingdoms, separate entities. But when they start to link up like that, is there a way to think about this where, rather than a relationship of give and take, it's actually just one organism functioning together? And I say that in the same way I would think about my gut bacteria as part of me. I don't walk around saying, "Hi, I'm Annie," and then like also, "Oh, by the way, here's one of my gut bacteria." Like, I just talk about myself. Yeah. And that. And that. I. So i This is again like the briefest version. And the last thing I'll say is that one thing I find really interesting in, in thinking about non-English language speakers. Robin Wall Kimmerer being like the most well-known exam- example of this, but she, um, uh, in the Potawatomi language, there are words that um, inherently have action embedded in them. So like we have nouns, those nouns don't necessarily have gender and they don't necessarily have action. So the classic example that I use in my class is that she has this word um, that like we have the word for bay, which just means water in a space. Her, the word for bay in Potawatomi means to be a bay. It is an active choice that the water is making to be captured within land and that it has this inherent animus to it, like a, or sorry, not animus, just like spirit of life. So I say that because I think where we are limited when we talk about relationships between trees and fungi is I have to use the word like mother, because there's no word that means specific to plants, the the type of nutrient sharing that may have a sense of tenderness, but that tenderness might be specific to plants. There isn't that language because we don't prioritize plants for one, the fuck all, like that's a problem. And that's why we're losing them at a great extinction rate. But we also just, I don't think in the English language, have that sense of tenderness towards non-human things, um, and, and sense of empathy and openness. So I'm not even talking about how we like legally don't protect plants. Uh, Like there's all this other stuff, but that, but it's, it's, that would be, that would be the short version of this class and the way I think about these things, um,
3: Hmm, that's amazing so really bringing linguistics in and how we think and speak about plants in general or identify plants and 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 I guess also how we identify with plants um huh yeah and identify with isn't a problem
4: that's where anthropomorphization becomes helpful yeah like if I think mother tree makes me love trees better yeah Hell yeah like let me conserve trees because I treat them like a mother. Like great, but it's but it, it where it makes me nervous is when you get this pseudoscience. So that's again, that's kind of why I come back to this. Like, oh, I work for the New York Botanical Garden. Like, I truly do teach mostly from a perspective of like, please understand the fundamentals of botany, and then let's talk about what what is communication. Because I don't want you to think that trees are out there being like, yo, I have nitrogen. <laughs> you know, it's it's a it, there's actually like osmosis happening and like. You know, like there are functional chemical things happening that allow for that process to to occur, and that's that's yeah. Where I
3: and that was interesting when you were talking about like could could the plant and the mycorrhizal be one um, one organism? And and for some reason, what I was thinking about was coral, and how a lot of times you know we think of coral as one organism, but it's actually multiple organisms in one but it's totally. like kind of creating this ecosystem and one lives within the other and they kind of both benefit from each other. Um, and just also this idea of, um, I don't know where I was going with this a little bit in my mind was can, uh, an ecosystem be an organism. Exactly. You know?
4: Right. And particularly when you're thinking about trees and mycorrhizal networks, it, it, it's, you know, it's this, I guess to me, it's less astonishing that we're finding out that they do communicate. And it's more astonishing to me that we just assumed they didn't <laughs> because when you have you, when you have something like fungi that's been on earth for um, I, I want to say 500 million years, and I'm not sure that's long enough. Basically it's twice as long as, as tree plants have been. And, and in that we're talking about like hundreds of millions of years. I think it's trees that I'm not going to remember, but the point being, this is something that like so predates our concept of, life on earth in so many ways that's so outside of the scale we think at, how could there not be a relationship? And so yeah. saying that saying that it, it, it you know, then you're pointing to something really valuable, which is if you don't think about it in terms of ecosystem, it makes it a lot easier to destroy. Because when you start to individualize a plant within a landscape or a type of plant within a landscape, you you take away all the units that go into making that plant survive. Um, and that you know, it's a problem with modern landscaping and you know, you you and I, Melissa, had the pleasure of working at a at a rooftop garden that is very diverse. Um, I mean, there were over 120 species of plants on this tiny little roof garden, this private little roof garden green roof. And I think one of the great strengths of that garden is that it's introduced and native plants. But that diversity, like, really, really helped. Whereas, you know, you could go to a green roof and see only sedum, or you could go to a roof garden like so many of the ones you worked on with plant specialists that are like boxwood. It's horrible. No plant on earth lives that way.
3: Yeah, I've always been curious about, um, this idea. And I think usually as growers, especially if you're using, you know, natural practices or organic practices, one of the things that, you know, at least I, I try to work towards is creating an ecosystem and having a lot of biodiversity, because of course, that's going to help with pest management. That's going to help with, um, the health of your plants in general. Um, but I've always thought about, um, this, you know, studying from this like scientific background, scientific method, if a farm, let's say was a forest, like in, in nature, this sounds so weird, but what would be the ideal kind of ecosystem? Cause I, I still feel like sometimes people just like, we'll put plants together. And of course there's companion planting and there's all these other things. Um, but I've always thought of this idea of like, how, how can I, um, And I don't know if I'd want to say necessarily like mimic nature and maybe the closest thing that's coming to that right now is this um, is like agroforestry um, where people are kind of creating these ecosystems and seeing how these certain species of plants and, you know, fungi and bacteria and everything else kind of work together. And of course, animals as well. Um, But look at it in this historical ecological background um, and maybe like where these plants evolved or, or how can we actually create these? Um, I don't know. I've just been curious about that lately of instead, no, I, of- you,
4: I think you're pointing to when you say, where do these plants evolve? You know, one, one space that's really interesting to explore are n- native edibles and how can we create food landscapes that, you know, not only are growing plants that are, you know, endemic to the area, but also growing them in a way that makes sense for that local ecosystem. One of of the things that really strikes me about farming and why I've been like going deeper into non-farming plant love world is um, water use. You know, a lot of you, we could talk, and I think most people would, on your listening to this kind of a podcast would already know about like some of the dangers of pesticides and herbicides. And you know, the reasons we have to use these on vegetables one, it's because there's an expectation that vegetables are perfect. And then two, it's because vegetables are often introduced from Europe, um, from Asia. Like, you know, some of our favorite vegetables like kale, like that's not a Native American plant. Um, so you have to use pesticides and herbicides or quote unquote have to because, you know, they're not within our ecosystem. So, but the water thing really kills me. I mean, above and beyond anything else, like, whoa, what a absolute waste. And, you know, I've learned through the Botanical Garden, um, primarily, and then through Eagle Street Rooftop Farm, the green roof farm I manage, that um, there are ways to plant plants so that between mulching, um, intercropping, um, there are techniques uh, building up the organic matter content in your soil. There are techniques that help retain water and that helps stop the plants from getting stressed. And then you mentioned mycorrhizal um, uh, inoculants, bacterial inoculants, like all these things that help... Um, extend the capacity of the plant to draw in water because that's really the one of the primary roles of fungi is extending root systems so that they can draw in more water and then also they help with like bringing in potassium and other minerals that are harder for plants to um, absorb but that if you're building healthy soil and you're growing plants that do well in that microclimate um, it's just yeah it's just more responsible and I, I don't think you necessarily have to put like a umbrella culture on it. Like I'm doing agroforestry or I'm doing biodynamics or I'm doing, you know, forest farming or permaculture. I like that stuff. I think it's a great place to start because it gives you sort of a structure to follow. But, but to me really, it's like, if I'm committed to a space and it's why it's why I've worked at the place I've worked for so long, I get to know that space. I know when the soil dries out, I know under what conditions the plants start to crap out and, and I can start to lean into choices that support it. And I Eagle street's probably the best example of that, because that is a six inch deep, super dry green roof media, it's not great for vegetables and it never was. And I knew that from the jump. And so what we ended up doing over time is after growing like 40 different varieties of vegetables to see what stuck, narrowing it down to plants that worked well for that site. So instead of trying to bend the site to my desires or my customers' desires, I went the opposite direction. I said, look, Mediterranean plants that grow in dry rocky soils do real well for us. So even though they're not native, they, when I don't cut them in the thyme flowers, that supports um, pollinating insects. Um, and then I can sell the flowers for a bajillion dollars because people in New York are crazy. Um, and then it does really well because it doesn't need a lot of water. And the best is it's a perennial. I'm just picking on time. There's other plants we grow, but it's a perennial so that over time, no pun intended, the root systems are establishing themselves and that's helping the plant thrive in a site that's very dry and prone to drainage. So I just, at this point, I kind of like give up on like I would love to grow a melon. (laughs) It's just never going to happen. I'll grow a melon somewhere else. Um, And I I think that's probably the way I would approach most farm sites at this point is like, see what the land is telling you and lean into it.
3: Yeah. That, that is such a, a great um, point. And especially being on a rooftop farm and, and also being on a rooftop farm in a city and specifically New York city. Right. And um, you guys are up in Greenpoint in Brooklyn um, and just, how urban areas I find in general are there, they can be tough areas to grow in. And also being on a rooftop, it's almost like you are on a mountaintop, you know, like that is your, that's the environment where it's super exposed. You're full. sun. I think you're still full sun, right? Yeah. So super exposed full, full, full wind because wind you're right off the water, um, yeah. which is going to change the climate as well. And New York city in general is right off the water. Um, and, and also not a lot of soil. So that means you don't have a lot of that buffer slash support that soil holds, just like how soil holds water temperature, all these other things. But it is amazing that, you know, you're looking at your space and you're thinking about, okay, what has evolved in these conditions? Um, and also what it's, it's great, um, knowledge to have because also as we are going into, a climate that is more exposed, that um, is a lot drier. Um, you know, it's like m- maybe that is the future of farming in general. Like, okay, the work that you're doing right now on rooftops, is that going to prime certain places of like what they will become in this sense yeah. of like more exposure to wind, all these other things in general? Um, but how you could do that in um, like observing the space and doing it in a very intelligent way. Um, And also that you, you guys don't have irrigation, right? Yeah. I mean, we
4: have a hose, I I have a hose that we have access to. Um, We aim to not use it. And the theory with that is that um, it's twofold. One is I think the role of a green roof in a city like New York that does have stormwater management issues, really it's ideal that we are ready at any moment to accept stormwater um, from, from a, large rain event. So if I'm irrigating constantly and the soil is constantly saturated, it's less capable of absorbing those heavy storms. So, you know, it sounds a little pious. I'm not trying to be like, you know, the green roof, you know, uh, whatever. I, it's important to me ethically. Um, and then the second piece is that I actually have found it's actually a a wonderful exercise um, to learn what plants do well in dry soil. So if we were to irrigate more consistently, um, I could grow that melon I want, but to me, it's actually more fascinating to figure out what does well in dry soils. Um, but we do have a host. So if I'm like sowing seeds, I have to have some supplementary irrigation.
3: Yeah. Um, I'm also curious because I've started to notice in seed catalogs that, um, certain seed companies are starting to push more varieties that are drought tolerant. Have you looked at these at all? Or do you kind of, um, are, are you curious about this sense? Like I guess it's like, you know, what variety is it and what does that actually mean to be drought tolerant and where and all these other things? So, of course, there's a bunch of specifications um, to think about. But have you been interested in that at all or or just the idea of like, I'm going to, you know, I know peppers work in drier areas. They could deal with the winds. Um, They do great in this sunny, exposed location. Like that's where they want to be or rosemary or thyme or like, you know, just these. Mediterranean, um, um, plants in general. Um, but yeah, I was just curious about that. Have you noticed that, 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 um, seed companies are starting to push these more drought tolerant or not really? I, well, so for the rooftop farm in particular, we,
4: um, save our, we save seeds. Um, I'm, we're so microclimate focused that I actually just save the seeds off of our plants from last year. And then that's what we usually sow. So I haven't noticed it for that. Um, Something I've been noticing in seed catalogs, where where we're looking at catalogs up at the botanical garden, um, is a, a growing interest in native uh, seed cultures, like like corn that's been grown in the U.S. for like two hundred years, three hundred years. So that it could also just be that's something that we're like actively looking for because it's part of a garden project we're working on. But um, but I like the idea that you could look for drought tolerant. I know that like slow bolt um, has always been a, a big thing with leafy greens. Um, And then, yeah, this, 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 the huge growth of local seed companies, like seed companies that are saving local seeds and selling them locally and the, and the indigenous and native seed um, has been awesome to see. And that's, that's something I feel like has been changing over the last decade.
3: Yeah. That's such a, that's such a great topic. And, and also that you all seed save. I didn't, I didn't realize, um, you seed saved in. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm a cheap state, so that's part of it. <laughs> well, but the thing is, it's like before seed companies, that's what people did. And that's yeah. also like, you know, maybe it'll take hundreds or thousands of years, but in, in you all selecting you're you're of course, selecting the best plants to save the seeds from. So that is going to help you out in the long run of like, you know, you're picking the crops that are doing the best in your environment, and then oh, it helps within a year, like literally wow. one season to the next. Yeah, because if you think about it, you know, I'm to 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 get
4: a you know seed true to type might take me a couple years of growing, like eight years of stabilizing it or something. But no, I've noticed literally like one year to the next. Like if we're selecting for an improved
3: variety, like that next year we'll have we'll have good results. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and so true to type meaning that um, that's with any it's seed like, or just with hybrids. You don't uh, you don't I, save seeds from hybrid.
4: Uh, no, we, we've done it from anything. And that, huh. I think that's what I mean is like, usually cause you know, if we're saving seed from a, a hybrid and I plant like it's going to, you know, it's going to be like 90 of the plant the next year. Cause you get so many seeds off of one plant. Um, yeah, we'll usually, and then we'll just select for what, what looks good. Um, wow. but no, I just mean stabilizing it, stabilizing it would take, um, I, well, I mean, at this point there are some seeds that we have saved almost since the beginning of the farm began. Um, so would I consider them stabilized No, I mean, I I guess it would have to be, you know, like an easy example is our calendula. I've been growing calendula from saved seed now for nine years because I'm not going to buy new calendula. Like calendula produces a million seeds and like, it doesn't really matter what color it turns out as. Um, So we do every now and again, like get weird colors or weird shapes, but it's, it's the same calendula genetics for what I need. I need a calendula that can handle being in dry soil.
1: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
3: Do you have, for for those um, folks who are listening, do you have any advice for saving seeds? Like where you store it, that type of thing? Or um, has it been like a work in progress in, in, you know, storing good seed? Or it's just been kind of easy?
4: Uh, it, well, it's easier than you think. It's pro- and that's, I'm going to say that universally for all things gardening, <laughs> I think folks, and I love it because they sign up for my classes and I, you know, I want you to sign up for my classes, but it is, it is, I am completely self-taught. I mean, I learned from working with people smarter than I am, but I, I, I never, did I ever take a class? I think I've taken soil science, but, um, but I just like being mentored and reading books, um, is, is my primary go-to, but, um, With seed saving, uh, yeah, no, the only thing is, you know, you have to understand a seed contains a living plant, right? It just hasn't been enzymatically activated. So you want to keep it in a place that will not make it grow. Um, So ideally, it's a cooler, drier space. Water and sometimes light, depending on the seed, helps them germinate. Um, And then uh, I think a lot of people are super curious how long you can keep seeds for. Um, I just wrote an article a couple years ago for Martha Stewart Living about um, a woman who sprouted a date seed seed that was pre biblical. Um, and I like went to Israel and met the fucking tree and it's, it's wild, you know, when it, it, it's a male tree, but if they ever hybrid or if they ever cross it with a female tree and pollinate the female tree, you'll be eating a date that is the same genetics and ostensibly the same flavor, taste and shape as a, as a plant that was eaten thousands of years ago. Wow,
3: That is amazing <laughs> that you actually went there because I remember reading an article of yeah. about that. I and- met Elaine, I met the
4: woman who did it. Wow. She's- easy. I love her. (laughs) She's got like such deep farmer energy. She's very soft-spoken. She's kind of grumpy. It was the best, but yeah, the tree is cool. Um, Methuselah is the name of it, but, um, and it's a date tree, but all that to say, if you save seeds in good conditions, you know, please don't save it for 2000 years, but like you can save a tomato seed for five, six, seven years. That's fine. And I, I find great pleasure in that because, you know, I often give seeds as gifts and it's sort of a, a future promise, right? Like if I'm giving it to you and you live in an apartment, might be five, four years before you, you know, have a place to plant it. And that's okay. Just keep it in a cool, dry place.
3: Yeah, that's so interesting. Cause I remember in one of our first episodes on Fields, um, we did an episode about seeds. And I remember um wife mentioning how seeds are almost like time travelers. Like, you know, like this seed was from a thousand years ago, which is yeah. so incredible. And and how different our environment or the earth was then compared to what it is now or how much, how different our environment now will be, you know, from even a hundred years or 50 years or 20 years because of climate change. So it's just so interesting and, and how, and I know I'm anthropomorphizing plants right now, but this idea of like how smart plants are, where it's like, I'm going to, um, you know, put my, um, my genes in this, um, I'm gonna have them be dormant and only wake up when it is the right time for them.
4: It's a beautiful lesson for us all, really. Yeah. To be a seed in all things is is a very cool way to think about your life and your plans and your schemes and your dreams. Mm, <laughs> that's great. Yeah.
3: That's There's
4: great. a Thoreau, um, Henry David Thoreau. Uh, I can't remember if it's the name of an essay or a line in the essay. It's to have faith in a seed, and he talks about that exact concept. How how there's so much potential locked into this tiny little organism, and um, and what that can teach us about the way we should live and be, um, yeah, I, you know that I'll, I'll say where I think you're right in anthropomorphizing is that with food crops, it is completely permissible to talk about the the sensibility and the cultural relationship within those because food crops are plants we have chosen and selected and hybridized. They are our they are our story. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't walk around telling you how to think about an acorn. But food crops, yeah, and and the other person I met, this woman Elaine slosey who who helped with the Methuselah date. The other woman I met while I was in the Middle East was um, a Palestinian woman who runs the Palestine Seed Library, and she talked about how um, she has been walking around Palestine gathering seeds from people who are afraid that the plants that they grow, the crops that they grow, will not have a welcome home anymore. I mean, these are like their great grandparents' melon seeds, um, because um, you know, with everything that's going on between Palestine and Israel right now, there's not as much available land space. And then the crops that they're able to grow is limited. Um so I found that really compelling. And it it definitely, again, it's called the Palestine Seed Library. So if folks are interested in learning more about that story, you can look it up. I also wrote an article about it for Martha's Stewart Living as well. Um, but it's it is to me one of the better examples of thinking about how seeds we do have a direct connection, like a, a cultural storytelling connection through the way that we think about seed saving.
3: Yeah. I've also, um, that, that made me think of the amazing, um, work that Seth Geller does, um, and she's part of the Long Island seed consortium. But, uh, I remember when I was getting my master's, um, I took this class called sustainability on the East end of Long Island and we visited her farm and she does a lot of seed work. She breeds so many different varieties. She grows them out, she breeds them. Um, and she mentioned this idea of, um, when regions are about to go into war, how it's really important that sometimes, um, folks would get in touch with her and be like, listen, my area might go into war. So can I send you some of these varieties so that they will be safe? Cause I don't know what's going to happen. And like, when you lose these varieties, um, not only are you losing the biodiversity, but you're also losing this culture. Um, so it's just, so I don't know. Um, And and it also made me think about, you know, of course, the stuff that's going on in Ukraine and Russia right now. And um, we were actually working on this project at the NYUC library of thinking about wheat varieties that are specific from, you know, northeastern region. And are those are some of those varieties in danger or jeopardy in general? Um, So it's kind of interesting. It's like not only climate change. Climate change is a huge one when it comes to biodiversity and how many things are going to be able to survive and adapt, but it's also like our key to adaptation is biodiversity. Um, but also just this sense of, um, this cultural connection and how human caused things like war can also destroy that biodiversity and cultural and, and yeah. I yeah. Know. No, Sorry. I hear, went off no, on no, a I tangent think, there.
4: No, it's not a tangent. And I think you're, you're interrelating those ideas really well, because if I'm feeling upset that, you know, potentially Palestinian food genetics are going to disappear because of, you know, land conflict, et cetera. It is a much larger, broader, bigger war that we're fighting with climate change. And that's going to impact not just our food crops, although that's one of the things we focus on very heavily because we like to eat food, but it is impacting just the broader plant, animal, fungal, bacterial, viral world. Like it's, it's a, it's a much bigger war. And I, you know, as a person who generally trends towards optimism as best possible, I don't often frame it in that term, but I started working in bird conservation more actively about six or seven years ago. And it's really, really hard to talk about that without it feeling like genuine conflict um, because it, birds are so charismatic and have so much personality as individuals and as species. And so you, I find myself relating to them a lot differently than I do with plants. And when I see you know, dead birds because they've struck building glass, for example, that feels like war doesn't feel like a sad, distant climate change, you know, anthrop- anthrop- anthropocene concept that feels like actual battle. Um, so I'm glad, I'm glad you really did the two that makes a lot of sense to me.
3: And I'm going to go out and reach and relate, um, two more cause we have to go really soon. Um, but A, just um, if you could speak about a little bit, just about the origins of Eagle Street Rooftop Farm and for folks who have never heard of it, what that is. And also, for some reason, I was just thinking about like, huh, I wonder in Annie being on a rooftop farm and being in the sky all the time, if maybe that's piqued your interest in birds, but also how you got into ornithology. And I know that's like two very broad wide things. But just in general, um, just for folks who, who may not know about the um, Eagle Street Rooftop Farm and Growing Chefs, just the origin of that really quickly. And, and then also your work with ornithology, because I know you're really passionate about that right now, and you're doing incredible work with it. Thanks. Yeah. So the Botanic Garden, I got there in
4: 2005 as an intern. I wanted, as a young 20-something, to have something really powerful on my resume. So I created a nonprofit called Growing Chefs, and I named myself the director. That's a pro tip for everyone graduating college. Do it.
3: <laughs> you, can, you can
4: start employing people you like. You can start developing programs you like. You can put director on your resume, and you can have a, a tax write off for certain things if you're being um, very legal and judicious about it, which I am. Um, so I loved it. Uh, that's that's how Growing Chef started, and I did it as, as I mentioned up at the top. As you know, I found schools and after school programs to partner with, and we did STEM or STEAM based programming using cooking and gardening as a way to talk about science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, um, steam. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, it continues to be a passion to this day. So that operates separately from the botanic Garden, separately from the rooftop farm. Um, the rooftop farm, I was working at the farmer's market and was approached by Ben Flanner, who's the founder of the Brooklyn Grange. He was, um, marinating on this idea of starting a green roof vegetable farm and he and I partnered up very early on because I had vegetable gardening experience and um he had this idea. Um, and so for the first year of Eagle Street, we worked together on, you know, founding that project and running it. And then the following year I got offered the full-time job at the botanical garden. So now I work all days of the week. And uh and then he uh went on to, to start Grange, Brooklyn Grange Farm, which is now the largest and I believe continues to be the largest network of greenery farms um, in New York City, at least, if not the larger region or country. Um, So it's really cool. I think I was lucky in both spaces to have um, been sort of plucked up in my early 20s into these careers that I really love. Um, And did that connect to birding? No. What got me interested in birding? I was at the rooftop garden that you and I took care of, this beautiful rooftop garden in the Battery. It overlooks um, the Battery Park in Lower Manhattan. And I happened to be up there on the night of, I think, September 10th, it must have been, which is a moment in which the Tribute in Light, which is this beautiful installation of very high powered spotlights, shine from where the Twin Towers were um, pre-2001. And the Tribute was shining um, these spotlights a mile into the sky. There are 44 spotlights in each array. So it's 88 high powered spotlights next to this rooftop garden that you and I took care of. So I was looking at them and I saw a bunch of things circling in them. Like it looked like almost like ash from a fire. And I turned to the gentleman whose rooftop this is. And I said, wow, what are all those bats doing? I didn't realize there are so many bats in New York City because that's, you know, what flies at night. And he sort of, off the cuff, was like, no, that's just birds. They just there's always birds in the lights, and I was like, what are you talking about? So I was intrigued, as I am when anybody says something enigmatic and slightly confusing. And um, I've, I reached out to New York City Audubon. I found out that New York City Audubon had been running a program to figure out, you know, why these birds were stuck in the lights, how to stop them from doing that. It's, it's to make a very long story short, not good for them. <laughs> um, and that was that was the beginning of my fascination with birds because of two things. One, I didn't know birds flew at night. Um, so a lot of migratory songbirds and shorebirds migrate at night for various reasons, which is just fascinating to think about. Um, and the other is, uh, I don't know. I don't think until that moment, I don't think I very fully realized how biodiverse New York City is. We see upwards of 60% of all species of North American birds in New York City. Wow. Yeah. We're very lucky. It's an incredible place to become a birder, um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that because I kind of want everybody to be teased enough to get interested, but I, I know we're running out of time. But basically, if you're interested in birds, um, you couldn't have asked for a better place to live. And um, and New York City Audubon is a great organization to ease you into it. And then now the work that I do, um, I'm writing an illustrated book about this um, because so much of this work scientifically is studied through radar. And radar is really beautiful to draw, um, among other things. And then I also i am on the board of the American Bird Conservancy, which abcbirds.org is hands down nationally if not internationally because it does work across the Americas the finest bravest feistiest strongest best most wonderful organization you could ask for in terms of bird conservation abcbirds.org the fucking coolest um so i'm i'm on their board i stand them super hard um and uh and I, i'll leave it at that but please everybody pick up some binoculars <laughs> <laughs>
3: Um, and Annie, of uh, of course, very important. We, we haven't mentioned the book that you've already written. Wow. <laughs> so can you yes. just two seconds brief? Oh <laughs> God, it's just like so much work. It's, it's just so incredible. All the work that you put out there and, and that you're doing. Um, but yes, can you talk about, um, the book that you've already written?
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, Renaissance woman, musician, gardener, teacher, <laughs> And uh, i back at you. But uh, yeah, so I wrote a book called The Rooftop Growing Guide, How to Transform Your Roof into a Garden or Farm. It's published by 10 Speed Press. Um, and it's great. I illustrated it with my friends Lauren and uh, Liz, Elizabeth Timpone and Lauren Haynes. Um, it's photographed by Naima Green and Jackie Snow, two incredibly talented photographers. And uh, came out in 2016. It's really a good compendium. And even if you don't have a rooftop, the rooftop growing guide includes a lot of basic information. A lot of things we talked about today, companion planting, intercropping, permaculture, uh, seed saving. It's all in the book. There's even a little bit about birds.
3: Yes. So incredible. Um, and I'm so sorry that we're we're going to have to wrap up soon. And I, I always love talking to you, Annie. It's always an amazing conversation. Um, and thank you so much for for sharing your knowledge and just your incredible perspective. It's just so amazing always always to talk to you. Um, but I did want to ask you one more question of um how can people look up your work? Um, do you have uh what are some classes that you're about to teach? So so if you want to shout out some of the classes with Atlas Obscura, with the New York Botanical Gardens, um uh if you have Things coming up with Eagle Street Rooftop Farm, like you're looking for apprentices or, or all the things. So if you just want to talk about that for, for two minutes and how yeah. people can get in touch with you and look up your work. Totally. Well, the nice thing is
4: everything I work on is public facing. So if what we've talked about today excites you, you are welcome to these spaces. Um, AnnieNovak.com is a good one. Uh, it's N-O-V-A-K. And my Instagram, which I think is AnnieNovak underscore... I can't remember, but it's it's Annie Novak. Um, I have a the little link in that bio. will take you to a list of all the classes. The next class is coming up. Um, the spring is the hot season for New York Botanical Garden programs. So I have a whole bunch of things coming up talking about herbs, um, small space vegetable gardening, uh, container gardening, rooftop gardening. That's all happening. My next Atlas Obscura class, which starts on Thursday next week, is called How to Read an Urban Landscape. And it's an exploration of botany and ecology um, so that if you're sitting at a bus stop and just staring at weeds growing next to the pavement, you can immediately engage in that landscape in a really enriched way. Um, I also teach a companion class called How to Read a Landscape, which is about landscapes more broadly. But, you know, urbanites need their special niche. Um, And then uh, if you want to get involved in Eagle Street Rooftop Farm or the Edible Academy at the New York Botanical Garden, both of those spaces do take volunteers. So you can also look them up. Um, A simple Google search will take you to all the right places. Um, And then, Melissa, you mentioned the apprenticeship program. This is a program now entering its one millionth year. Um, Well, technically, it's 2020. No, not 23rd. It's not possible. Uh, I don't know. We started it in 2010. It's been going for a while. But, um, But that is a program where you commit three months of volunteering, but only... Two days of the week for three hours per day. So it's six hours a week. It's very manageable with full-time jobs, which is essentially what I'm doing as well. Um, and it's a training program. So you can learn everything that we just talked about in great detail and participate at the Eagle Street Farm. And yes, I would love people to apply. It's it's um, it's been a real pleasure. I'd say that the group of people I've met through that program, which now exceeds 175 people, have been the most brilliant, loving, beautiful, hardworking, inspiring, creative, wonderful, intelligent young people I've ever gotten a chance to know. And I hope. I hope my world is just always filled with people like that. People like you, it's just, it's a blessing, honestly, the space we work in. We really hang with the coolest people.
3: (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Annie. Thank you for um, being on the show. And um, just, it's been such a pleasure to kind of pick your brain. I love picking your brain all the time. Um, And also just kind of catching up and seeing all of the work that you're doing. Um, And of course, like all of uh, your, such intelligent perspectives um. Yeah. And and thank you again. So it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Annie. Thank you. Thanks, Melissa. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, we are wrapping it up for um fields today. So thanks, everyone. Thanks for tuning in.
2: Fields is powered by Riverside.